Welcome to another edition of Expanding Mind. I'm your host, Eric Davis, continuing our conversations about the cultures of consciousness. We've been doing this for a long time, almost 10 years now, and uh, the archive's available on my own uh, website, technosis.com, Expanding Mind, uh, also available on the prn.fm website. That's the uh, radio station, online radio station, that's been hosting my show since the very beginning, and also on Podbean, Stitcher, iTunes, and all of that stuff. If you do go to these places and enjoy it and haven't left a comment, I'd really appreciate it. I'm trying to uh, spread the word a little bit more proactively, uh, pulling myself out of my uh, my little uh, obscure hobby hole uh, and, and getting it out there in the thriving world of uh, podcasts here in the uh, uh, late teens of the terrifying century we're in. Uh, I got one piece of email I just wanted to share from Charlie. Just wanted to let you know how much you and Expanding Mind have been an, an inspirational and transformative force in my life. Been listening for nine years, and you've always been the quality litmus test for all our podcasts. Very few come even close to EM. Your ability to navigate, articulate all sorts of reality tunnels, strange and beguiling ideas and texts in the outer inner realms is unparalleled. He talks about the way of Eric Davis, which is pretty cool. I like that. I like the idea that there is a way here. There is a method to what can look a bit mad in terms of the eclecticism and range of topics that we cover. Uh, today's episode will be a further uh, demonstration of this range as we uh, dive into the uh, squirrely world of quantum physics. Um, I read uh, our guest today is Adam Becker, and I read his book, What is Real? The Unfinished Quest for the Meaning of Quantum Physics last year, and I immediately tried to get him on the show, and it took a while to uh, track each other down, and we finally did, and uh, came through through our mutual friend, Margaret Wertheim, who I've also had on the show, but is uh, due for a return. Um, This book for me was a total gas, and I wanted to set it up a, a, a little bit by saying, by kind of characterizing my own approach, interest in physics. I'm one of those, like, wide-ranging readers who's interested in religion, in philosophy, continental philosophy, and analytic philosophy, science, fantasy, science fiction, uh, uh, spirituality, metaphysics, you know, the whole thing. I've always been this eclectic dude. And physics, particularly of the sciences, has always held a privileged place, partly just to break my brain on it so that I feel like I can kind of understand what's going on, at least on my, you know, non-mathematic uh, non-mathematical level, and also because it's it's so relentlessly challenging, particularly quantum physics, in terms of uh, presenting models of the world, models of reality, models of thinking, mod- models of interaction between human beings and the rest of the world that are so uh, uh, challenging, remarkable, strange, and weird. You know, there's a no, it's no accident that people uh, uh, talk about uh, quantum physics is as weird. Uh, even even physicists often use that term, at least to kind of as a shorthand for the non um, kind of intuitive aspects of quantum physics. And so, as a uh, as a student of high weirdness, I'm of course in, incredibly drawn to it. And one of the things that's a, it's always nice about uh, um, quantum physics is not the way that it can s- support metaphysical views. While I have read books of New Age physics, I have never been particularly persuaded by them as explanations. To me, they're more a kind of 
speculation, a kind of fantasy, a kind of way like in a science fiction novel they might go on some creative riff and that's how I've read a lot of the new age physics. I'm kind of interested in what people do with it but it, I, it was very clear to me that this was not the kind of physics that I would learn by talking to my father or talking by the actual physicists who I know and I was more interested in talking to them and reading the kinds of books they would read including pop science books to kind of get a get a handle on it. Nonetheless, um, there was certain appealing paradoxes uh, in quantum physics that that supported my kind of gut feeling that the world is a fundamentally mysterious and paradoxical place. Um, and so in that sense, I would sort of use or lean on a- a- aspects of the interpretation of quantum physics uh, as pointing towards some kind of fundam- fundamental aporias or co- uh, paradoxes in the world. And one of the reasons that I loved uh, Adam's book, well, there are a couple of reasons. One, it's historical. I really approach everything historically. To me, it's the, it's the best frame, even though it's a tricky one. Uh, full of good stories about characters, real people, and the, and the context that condition them, the way that science is itself conditioned by history. Very important thing to communicate. A lot of scientists don't want to acknowledge that. Uh, and, and also, uh, Adam paid a lot of attention to philosophical problems because it's really about this question of what is reality? What does quantum physics tell us about reality? Not how we can use these equations to make the world of electronics that we live in now. That's another question, which is also interesting. But what can we talk about? How can we talk about it philosophically? But my favorite thing is that Adam's book really called into question my own reliance on a certain interpretation of quantum physics that made a lot of room for fuzzy, mystical paradoxes, because he's after a different question. In fact, he's going after some of those very interpretations, those in, though in ways that were uh, highly uh, informing to me. So I'm uh, very happy that he joined us on the show. Uh, I want to give one more little bit. He's at the... Um, Center for Science, Technology, Medicine, and Society, UC Berkeley, just across uh, the bay from me. And one of the interesting things about him is he, he's a real physicist, which is always kind of funny when you talk to people who've written popular science. So he's a real scientist. He got his PhD in computational cosmology from the University of Michigan. And uh, one of the other interesting things about his career is he's a big uh, proponent of open science and has done a lot of work on uh, how research is spread and shared uh, these days, which is a a very important political and economic issue uh, inside science and indeed all university research these days. So a very interesting character. So happy to invite you onto the show. Adam, thanks for joining us on Expanding Mind. Oh, well, thank you for having me here, Eric. It's a real pleasure to uh, be on your show. So um, I want to hear a little bit about, first, about, uh, you know, you got this PhD in computational uh, cosmology, or or you're working on some very interesting questions, the origins of the universe. How do you become a historian? How do you put the (laughs) amount of years that, I mean, this book, it's hard to write books, man, and this is full of thought and deep history uh that requires a sort of change in the road in in a certain sense so what what uh what made that shift in your life you know uh it's it's funny you're you're not wrong um but but there's another sense in which it wasn't really a shift in the road you know the question was always okay what's what's going on right you know what's what's going on in the world what what is the world what's what is all this stuff around us you know uh one way of addressing that is to say okay uh, let's let's go uh, 
get a PhD in, in cosmology and, you know, figure out, okay, where'd all this stuff come from. But another way to address it is to say, okay, um, let's do history on a shorter time scale, right? Let's look at human history and the history of ideas and how we figured all this stuff out. And, um, so that's, but that's, you know, that's sort of a cop out. Um, the, the, the longer and, and more, more full answer to, to your question is, um, I had always been curious about what was going on with quantum physics um, because, you know, I read before I, before I studied physics in college, you know, I read a lot of popular science books about physics and uh, they said these very strange things about quantum physics, but they'd also said very strange things about, you know, special relativity. And then when I went and learned special relativity in high school, I thought, oh, you know, those strange things that they said about relativity, those things make sense now. It'll probably be the same with quantum physics. And so then I went and actually learned, you know, the mathematical machinery of quantum physics in, in college. And the things that people said about it did not make more sense. They they continued to not make sense. And, um, and, and you know, people gave fairly unsatisfying explanations for some of these paradoxes that are at the heart of the theory. And uh, the justifications that they gave uh, didn't really hold much water. And so then, you know, after a few years of that, uh, a second question showed up. You know, the first question was, what's the answer to these paradoxes at the heart of quantum physics? But the second question is, why are people giving me these strange answers that don't work? Why is... Why is uh, uh, this standard line on quantum physics among physicists just kind of unsatisfying and, and philosophically um, uh, non-rigorous, philosophically, um, at worst, philosophically meaningless, at best, um, vague, um, uh, annoyingly vague, vague in a way that we, we try not to be in the rest of physics. Um, so that question was always sort of there um, hanging out in my head. And, um, and by the time I finished my PhD in physics, uh, I thought, okay, you know, I really enjoy science communication. That's a direction I want to go in. And, uh, then that sort of led to the opportunity to write a book. And, um, and I thought, okay, well, I know what I want to write about. I want to write about these strange things in quantum physics and why people, in the physics community and outside of it think the strange things that they do about quantum physics. Um, and, uh, yeah. That's, and you did it, you know, and, 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 and yeah. And, and <laughs> I, again, I, I real what I really loved hearing your story there is just the way how it demonstrates the way that, that, that philosophy is alive and well, or can be alive and well in yes. our, in our individual lives that what, what made you unsatisfied and what drove you on into these questions were were philosophical questions as well as an interest in, or even obsession with with physics and and for that reason alone I think your book is really important because as you talk about at the end of the book there's a lot of popular there's a lot of scientific figures including scientific communicators um, a certain uh, cosmos host could be mentioned who <laughs> are in very visible positions who say as you describe them terribly ignorant things about philosophy 
And so it's your your own exploration is a wonderful expression of how science and philosophy can work together, but not be reduced to the same thing. And that in addition to that, that some of the answers are historical, which, you know, makes me incredibly happy. And and one thing I, w- I want to uh, make clear to, to listeners, and, and again, it's an attraction to the book, is like, you know, the, I've read tons of popular science books on physics and other topics too, but, but particularly to staying within physics realms, is that the vast majority of them, whether they're written by real physicists or, or you know, smart guys who study, or gals who study, I've read a lot by women too, is uh, there's usually the sense that they're trying to kind of educate the reader, make sure that they they don't their 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 own their own readings don't get too squirrely, and there's kind of a sense that you're you're kind of sitting there at the at the knee of someone, or or at least um, someone who's uh, translating from that. The, the goal is to translate. Your book is very clear that it is an argument. It is in a sense a polemic. You want to, you, you see something that's wrong in the way that people interpret quantum physics, wrong and widespread, the, the, the still kind of dominant uh, ideas of the Copenhagen interpretation, which anybody who's read these same books will be familiar with at least vaguely <laughs> ring a bell, uh, <laughs> that you're like, no, this is wrong. And here's some other guys who are doing other stuff that's much better a way to think about it. And, by the way, there's a philosophical implication to this whole, uh, this whole argument that I have. It's not just about a way of interpreting physics. It's about thinking about what is reality and how we can't get away, we shouldn't get away from that thought or that question. And the last place we should stop asking it is in physics, and yet, from your interpretation, the Copenhagen interpretation, this dominant way of, of, of understanding quantum f- uh, uh, physics, is sort of a, a dodge from, from that question. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the usual way that the Copenhagen interpretation is deployed is it's just, it's a way to dodge a set of uncomfortable questions. Um, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't actually offer answers to questions like what does quantum physics tell us about the world or what is going on in quantum systems independently of our observations of them. And, um, you know, it, it, it tries to dismiss those questions as illegitimate, which is not a move that we make anywhere else in physics and is also not a move that is terribly... Not only it's not a move that's easy to justify philosophically. You can try to find a philosophical justification for it, but the justification that is generally the justifications that are generally given in the name of the Copenhagen interpretation for you know saying questions like what's going on in the world and what's happening when we're not looking are illegitimate questions. Justifications usually given by the Copenhagen interpretation are not very good at all. Even philosophers who might think that those questions are not good questions to ask don't think that the Copenhagen interpretation actually addresses those questions in a good way. <laughs> and the vast majority of the philosophy of physics community is, oh, sorry about that. Um, the vast majority of the philosophy of physics community uh, is, is pretty much in agreement that, um, that, you know, the Copenhagen interpretation doesn't 
uh, doesn't address these questions and that these are legitimate questions that need to be addressed. Yeah. Um, I mean, what, one way of approaching it that, that I kind of uh, sort of a handy heuristic for this tension is the, 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 the conflict or the tension between realism, which yeah. you'd say is, yeah, there's a real world out there that's independent of our thoughts and instruments. Uh, we, we might not be able to describe it absolutely directly, but we can infer its existence and we can make claims about it and that that's a legitimate, if not a central part of science versus something we could call by different names, but probably positivism is probably the best way to approach it in, in this zone. Um, and, you know, maybe I'll let, I'll let you kind of characterize that one, which is a little bit more um, technical. And then maybe, you know, we talked earlier about, about using the famous uh, thought experiment of Schrodinger's cat as a way to illustrate these two different approaches to, to fundamental approaches to interpreting quantum physics. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, positivism is... There, there's a way in which, you know, for, for historical reasons, but also for, you know, like reasons, <laughs> just regular reasons, um, it's sort of easier to define realism and positivism in, in, in sort of uh, opposition to each other almost, uh, or, or, or at least to compare them, um, uh, like, like you were saying. Um, so uh, realism, like you said, is this idea that yeah, there's a world out there, whether or not we're looking at it, you know, sure, our actions in the world affect it. And uh, when we observe things in the world, the instruments that we use to make those observations can affect the things that we're observing. But those things are there, whether or not we're looking. It's just that, you know, sometimes we can't look without disturbing things. Um but there is a world, and it's there, it was there before there were humans. It will be there after there are humans. Uh, it was there, you know, while you were asleep. It was there when you woke up. It will be there after you die. It was there before you were born. Um, positivism isn't necessarily anti-realist. It, it, it doesn't necessarily... Uh, completely contradict that position, but it it, it often does. Um, so the the sort of cartoonish idea of what positivism is, which is reasonably accurate, is positivism says that uh, the only things we can really meaningfully talk about are our own observations, uh, and so. We can't talk about a world being out there independent of our observations because we can't meaningfully talk about that because, you know, you can't observe the world being there when you're not looking at it. You can't, uh, you, you can, you can infer that it seems like it might have been there, but, but really you can't say that the world was there when you weren't looking because all you can really talk about is what you see and feel and, you know, touch and taste and whatnot. Um, it's a, it's a strangely sensorily centered worldview, um, which is which is just kind of a, a a really odd way to look at the world. But the the positivists who you know the 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 people who who first put together this position uh, uh, logical positivism, 
in Vienna in the early 20th century. Um, I, I have a lot of sympathy for them, even though I think that they were wrong. Um, uh, you know, they they wanted to say things like, look, um, science gives us access to information about the world that is better and more accurate than other ways that we have historically used to understand the world. And, uh, and so then they wanted to sort of take an extreme version of that position and say, okay, science runs on sensory data fundamentally. And, uh, and so sensory, anything that doesn't run on sensory data uh, isn't meaningful and isn't something that, you know, is, is worthwhile or, um, or at the very least is not something that, uh, that, that can be talked about in like a logical scientific way. And, uh, and so, you know, questions like what is really in the world or is there a God or, uh, there is an immaterial spirit associated with, you know, the material body or things like that. They, they rejected all those claims, not as, you know, wrong, uh, but as meaningless, uh, which is really a strange move. You know, I, I, I understand in historical context why they did that, but, um, but what it means is, you know, they, they were claiming that science fundamentally runs on sense data and that's not really correct. I mean, certainly the, the, the things that we perceive with our senses play a very important role in science, but they are not, you know, the whole, um, the whole story about what we do when we do science. Science is a complicated process that also involves, you know, um, theorizing and um, trying to figure out what goes on in the world on the basis of the theory that you have and then designing an experiment on the basis of that theory and so on and so forth. So they had this sort of very um, cartoonish idea of the way that science actually works that doesn't line up with the actual practice of science. And that ended up being a real problem for them. And is why it's it's hard to defend the extreme positions that they took. Um, but although positivism doesn't really live on, I mean the 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 legacy of the positivists. There's there's a lot of positive things about the legacy of the positivists. Not to you know make an intentional pun, but um, uh, but there's. But you know the actual position of positivism doesn't really live on uh, in in philosophy departments uh, or among philosophers um, because you know the positions that they took about how science works don't really hold water or at least not the whole story. And yet, a sort of cartoon knockoff version of positivism is very common in physics departments and especially among um, you know especially within. Uh, quantum physics classrooms because you ask questions like hey um what does quantum physics tell us about the world or what's going on in a quantum mechanical system when we're not making observations and the answers that you get sort of sound positivist ish you get answers like oh that's not a question that you should ask those are meaningless questions those questions are not within the domain of science why would you ask that question which is weird right because you know if you ask hey, what's going on with an electromagnetic field when we're not looking? Maxwell's laws let you answer that question, and it's something that we talk about all the time. We don't talk about measurement in, um, in you know, electromagnetism uh, because it's not 
something that's seen as fundamental to the theory. But measurement is uh, uh, not something that should be fundamental in any physical theory, though, because it's this very poorly defined concept. Uh, it's, uh, it's, it's hard to say what constitutes a measurement, and yet in quantum physics, uh, we, we talk about certain things happening when you make measurements and other things, you know, that, that don't, and measurements are taken to be this, you know, fundamental aspect of the theory. And that's very, not only strange, you know, strange is fine. It's okay for physics to be strange. The world is a strange place, but it's also, uh, very difficult to actually come up with a coherent and consistent definition of what measurement means in that context that doesn't lead to you know contradictions with what we see in the world around us. So it's not just strange to have measurement play that role in the theory. It's uh, uh, of questionable logical coherence to have measurement play that role in the theory. Uh, and at the very least, you have a lot of hard work to do if you want to have it play that role in the theory rather than just waving your hands and saying, oh, measurement uh, is different. We can't talk about things other than when we're measuring them. So it's meaningless to talk about what's going on when we're not making measurements. Right. So let, let's take the, the example of, of Schrodinger's cat, which is something probably most people have heard of, and yeah. and sort of demonstrate these two approaches in terms of how you interpret this thought experiment. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so Erwin Schrodinger was not happy with the Copenhagen interpretation. He wasn't happy with this standard way of thinking about quantum physics, even though he was one of the, you know, founders of quantum physics and then his equation, the Schrodinger equation is the, you know, central equation of quantum physics. It's the way that, that, were taught to do quantum mechanics in in you know our first quantum mechanics courses in college and stuff like that. So uh, Schrodinger was very unhappy, uh, and so in 1935, in response to a paper by Einstein, who was also very unhappy, Schrodinger, you know, Einstein had basically made an argument that you know there was a real problem in quantum physics, uh, and Schrodinger sort of chimed in in response and said, "Yes, and also we have this problem." And, uh, and so this is where he came up with this idea of Schrodinger's cat. So what he said was, you've got, uh, imagine that you've got a vial of cyanide in a sealed box, and you set up this sort of Rube Goldberg contraption uh, involving a very weak radioactive source and a Geiger counter to detect the radiation from that source. And if it detects any radiation from that source, then the Geiger counter will release a hammer, which will fall and smash the vial of cyanide. And you've also got a cat in this box. And so if the vial of cyanide is smashed, then the cat will be killed. So the idea is you seal all of this stuff in the box uh, and then you wait for a little while. So if there's a radioactive decay in this weak radioactive source while you're waiting, uh, then the hammer will be tripped and the vial will smash and the cat will die. And if there's not a radioactive decay, then the cat will live. Uh, the problem is that the quantum mechanical description of what's going on in, uh, in the radioactive source uh, basically says uh, you can't tell with certainty whether or not there, there's been a decay, all you can do is say the probability of a decay. Uh, and until you look, 
the uh, the radioactive source has both decayed and not decayed, and it is the uh, it is the action of opening the box and looking inside that determines whether or not, or that forces the radioactive source to pick uh, either decayed or not decayed as its state. So that's that's the standard Copenhagen way of talking about this. What uh, Schrodinger pointed out was, okay, but if that's the case, if it's both decayed and not decayed before I look in the box, or, or at least neither decayed nor not decayed, and opening the box forces it to be one or the other. Well, given this contraption that I've set up, what that means is opening the box will force the cat to be either dead or alive. And that, that you know, maybe subatomic particles can perform these strange tricks where they're in both states at once, but cats are either dead or alive. They're not both or neither. Um. And certainly opening the box doesn't force the cat to be dead or alive. If I open the box and I find a dead cat, then, you know, a millisecond before I open the box, the cat was dead, or at least extremely close to death. Um, whereas if I open the box and find a living cat, then before I open the box, the cat was alive. So Schrodinger was basically taking this realist position that there's something that was going on inside of the box and yes, opening the box might have some small effect on the, on what was going on in the box, but certainly it cannot force the cat to be dead or alive. And the cat must have been dead or alive before he opened the box. Yeah. Um, the positivist position is to say you can't talk about what's going on before you open the box. Before you open, talking about what's going on in the box before you open the box is meaningless because you can't observe or sense anything going on in the box before you open it. Um, and I mean, and yeah, you know, in this, it's a thought experiment. So we're assuming, okay, it's a soundproof box and the cat can't move the box around. You know, there's no way of telling what's going on in the box before you open the box. Um, and so if there's no way to tell what's going on in the box before you open it, the positivists would say it's meaningless to talk about what's going on in the box before you open it. Yeah. And this was, this was sort of the response that Schrodinger got from a lot of his colleagues. And he felt, you know, they completely missed the point. That, uh, that, you know, he wasn't saying that quantum physics was wrong. He was saying that quantum physics was incomplete. It didn't give us a complete description of what was going on in the world because you couldn't use it to tell, you, you couldn't use it to say whether the cat was dead or alive before you opened the box. You know, um, you know it's interesting. This reminds me of something else when, you, when you're talking about, look, he wasn't saying quantum physics is wrong, but that it was incomplete. And it makes me think that, that in, in the kind of popular memory, as you probably encountered, Einstein's problem with quantum physics is usually remembered in terms of determinism. Yeah. It's, it's God doesn't play dice with the universe. Quantum physics says something is uh, probabilistic, which isn't even the same thing as rolling dice exactly, but that's another question. And that what, you know, Einstein was insisting on was a, de was a fully deterministic universe. And as you talk about it, that's not even really exactly right. That's not really where his main, his main beef was about, was, was also a realist position, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, Einstein Einstein certainly wasn't thrilled about not having a determinist theory, but, but his main concern was definitely about having a realist theory. You know, he said the ultimate goal of science 
he said the ultimate goal of science is to determine what is, you know, what's going on out in the world. And, uh, and you know, he, he thought that the Copenhagen interpretation, the usual way of thinking about quantum physics, just kind of abdicated that responsibility for no good reason. Um, and, and he was also disturbed by um, the idea of instantaneous action at a distance in quantum physics, uh, what, what he called non-locality, uh, or, or more memorably, what he called uh, spooky action at a distance. Um, so those, those two concerns, the concern about uh, realism and the concern about locality, um, those were really big concerns for Einstein. And the concern about determinism was kind of secondary. And that's, that's very clear if you look at his writings. But unfortunately, it's, you know, as you said, Einstein's usually remembered as, you know, having a really big concern about determinism and, and his other concerns are, are forgotten or barely mentioned, if at all. Um, I, I think a lot of that has to do with uh, how memorably Einstein uh, uh, complained about yeah. the lack of determinism when he said, you know, God does not play dice. That's a great quote, you know, uh, whereas, <laughs> whereas his quotes about realism and locality are not as easy to convey. And, and I also think, you know, his concerns were largely misunderstood by his contemporaries. Yeah. And uh, and so that led to them thinking, oh, his problem is with determinism or lack of determinism. Yeah. It is true that he wasn't happy about that, but that was not his main concern. And he he said that over and over again. And, uh, you know, he, he must have felt like he was just bashing his head against a wall uh, uh, and, and, you know, made it very clear that he was frustrated not only that his colleagues disagreed with him, but frustrated with his colleagues' inability to even grasp what his argument was, which seems to be uh, a, a, that's a, a common thread in in your in your book. I mean, it's one of the nice things again is that you're showing an aspect of how science actually works, which is that you know, very intelligent, very uh, cutting edge researchers, people coming up with new theories can also be very blind in certain ways about even things that are going on within their field uh, for historical reasons, for temperamental reasons, personal reasons. Yeah. Um, and that's really how you get to the kind of texture of these, the, the historical texture of them and and, and the, the sort of... Um, the way in which that has to be part of our story, even if we completely are, are interested in scientific accounts and scientific facts, you have to pay attention to these seemingly extraneous uh, conditions in order to understand how things are going. Now, I you mentioned locality, and I want to get to that in, in a bit, but before we do, I, I wanted to ask you to elaborate on a question, something that I uh, didn't know before reading your book, was that... Um, in terms of this question of, of measurement devices and how important they were to, uh, to the Copenhagen interpretation, that one of the keys to make that work was that quantum effects could not be influencing the measurement device. In other words, in order for the Copenhagen interpretation to work, the measurement device had to be existing in a purely classical world. Which yes. doesn't really make sense because everything is involved with this quantum world. So I would love you to unpack that a little bit, uh, just because it was a fascinating idea to me, and also seems like a a bit of an Achilles heel. Yeah, uh, I I think that's right. It is a bit of an Achilles heel. Um, 
I, I basically, you know, it's, it's quite strange. Um, you know, one of the things that's really slippery about the Copenhagen interpretation is that there isn't a single Copenhagen interpretation. There's, um, there's a, a, a sort of family of related positions that uh, various different physicists took or appeared to take um, uh, who were involved in the early days of the theory. And, and then also positions that people take that they claim are the same as those positions that the early physicists took. And, you know, so, so you end up with you know, a few dozen different things that people all claim are the Copenhagen interpretation and they're mutually contradictory. They can't all be right. Um, and, um, and, and, you know, by far the most slippery character here is this, uh, is, is Niels Bohr, who is, you know, one of the great physicists of all time. Uh, one of, he made, he made absolutely essential and, and groundbreaking contributions to early quantum theory. He was a mentor to generations of brilliant physicists and, uh, and his institute in Copenhagen, I mean, lent its name to the Copenhagen interpretation, but was also just legendary as a wonderful place to do physics, especially before World War II. Um, the, but, but Bohr was not particularly good at expressing himself clearly. Um, he apparently, his students said that he liked to say that truth was complementary to clarity. And so you could, you know, the more accurate you tried to be, the less clear you could be. And so they said the reason that Bohr was so unclear was that he was too concerned with truth, um, which um, I, I, uh, if I'm forced to be polite about that position, uh, <laughs> I think that that is um, not a terribly good argument for not being clear. Um, but in, in any event, um, it's not at all clear what Bohr thought. There's this whole cottage industry of, um, of academics of various stripes, physicists, philosophers, historians, what have you, trying to tease out what Bohr was saying in his different writings. And there is no consensus on what Bohr thought. Um, you know, I've had people criticize me for my book for saying that I completely mischaracterized Bohr. And I find that very interesting because I was very careful in my book to not characterize what Bohr's position was. I said, this is what people took his position to be, but it's not clear what Bohr's position was. Um, but one of the things that Bohr said and a lot of Bohr's followers said um, was that it was essential to use a classical physics description, like, you know, Newtonian physics description of measurement devices, that you couldn't use quantum physics to describe measurement devices um, because... Well, that the 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 rest of the sentence, the the uh, the because part is is exactly what's unclear. But you know, uh, some people said you can't do that because quantum physics doesn't apply to large objects, uh, which is not something that you know almost any physicist believes anymore. I certainly don't, um, and I, I don't know of any physicists who genuinely one hundred percent believe that. Um, well, that's not true. I know a few, but it's a minority view. Um, uh, and then, you know, some people said, oh, you know, uh, you can't use quantum physics to describe measurement devices because um, 
measurement is is a, a cognitive process as well as a physical process. It's 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 the process by which we learn what's going on in the world, and our brains are necessarily functioning under classical physics because, or our minds necessarily conceptualize of things. Um, using classical physics because that's the way our brains work. Like it's this weird sort of Kantian argument that that doesn't seem to really hold much water. Um, and and then you know other people would say things like, oh, you know, uh, the measurement process has to be classical because that's the interface between the mind and the world, and the mind doesn't obey quantum physics because the mind is you know an immaterial substance. And uh, yeah, it, like like, and and don't get me wrong. The, the question of how consciousness works is a hard problem. You know, it's been called the hard problem, right? Um, and there are many different proposals for how to solve that problem. And some of them do indeed involve dualism, though I'm not terribly sympathetic to those solutions. But uh, whatever the solution to the problem of consciousness is, is completely irrelevant to the question of how do we resolve these paradoxes at the heart of quantum physics, because things were things in the universe obeyed quantum physics long before there were any conscious beings around. Uh, you know, the universe is is uh, uh, 13.7-ish billion years old, you know, give or take a little bit. Um, it's long, long before... Uh, there were any planets or stars, much less life, much less conscious life. There were subatomic particles out there in the universe obeying the laws of quantum physics. Um, so quantum physics better not require conscious observers. Otherwise, we're in real trouble, especially when we do cosmology. Well, you know, right? it, was, it was yeah, for sure. It was it, it was interesting. Also, reading uh, the, you know, it's, you don't uh, spend too much time with it, but but some of these other interpretations that that actually put more power in the hands of consciousness in the way that later on sort of new age physics people do um, yeah. but coming from from within you know hardcore scientists saying well it must be consciousness that collapses the wave function and you're like wow i didn't i didn't know any of, I, I thought that was like a later hippie interpretation but some of these characters were there uh you know from the beginning yeah yeah no it's it's a position that people have held for a while um uh the at least since the late 1930s, possibly going all the way back to the mid-1920s when quantum physics was first, you know, laid out. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's a position that people have held. It's not terribly popular among physicists anymore, yeah. and for very good reason. Uh, you know, it doesn't seem to be correct. I mean, first of all, there are other ways of resolving the paradoxes in quantum physics. Um, you, without invoking consciousness. Um, second, uh, as I was saying, cosmology seems to tell us that quantum physics has held true in the universe for much, much longer than there have been conscious beings. So if you require conscious beings to allow quantum physics to function, then you're in serious trouble if you want to do cosmology. Um, and um, there's just no good answers to the many questions that would come up if you did try to invoke consciousness. You know, it, it, it doesn't, it just replaces one problem with another and, or really replaces one problem with a host of much more difficult problems that uh, don't seem amenable to solution and don't seem particularly relevant. Um, you know, it's not clear 
you know, what properties of consciousness would allow it to resolve these paradoxes in quantum physics? It's not clear the way that it would be relevant. Uh, there, there's a whole host of problems that show up. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I, I, you know, I, I'm looking at the clock, and it's 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 a little disturbing. We, we I knew this we were gonna ro- we were gonna rage, but we have like you know, t- 15 minutes left, and uh, and we haven't even gotten to some of the that we haven't got even got to non non locality. And before I ask the right. question, I just want to mention that you know another charming thing about this book is that the white hats, the good guys, <laughs> the non uh, pseudo mystical Copenhagen interpreters, um, are three incredibly fascinating characters. Uh, you know, Dave. Dave David Bohm, Hugh Everett, and John Bell are all very interesting figures. You know, David Bohm hung out with Krishnamurti. He had his own kind of approach to mysticism, but one that was also realist in a very interesting way. Hugh Everett, the many worlds theory, a theory that like first reaches the public mind through a science fiction magazine in 1976. Um, you know, great stuff. But the 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 one I was most happy to read about was was John Bell because uh, if you're interested in this stuff, you're going to come across this this invocation of Bell's theorem, the theorem that says that Einstein was right, and that if quantum physics is true, then non-locality is true, and I'll let you define that in a second. Uh, And so, you know, this theorem is really important to a lot of people, it was important to Robert Anton Wilson, it was important to a a lot of characters, but I never knew much about the man himself, and he was a very impressive character. So, uh, if you could talk just a little bit about uh, Bell's theorem and and how and what was it about him personally that kind of allowed him to pursue this very arcane uh, question at a time when nobody was interested in these sorts of I- issues? Yeah, no, that's a very good question. Um, it's certainly true that Bell's theorem has sort of made it out into the public consciousness in in strange ways and and been been misapplied and misinterpreted in um as well as you know correctly explained uh and it's 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 hard to separate out you know the the good from the bad um and one of the things that's contributed to that is there have been misunderstandings of it even within the physics community for a very long time some of which persist to the present day which is quite disturbing and and strange because as you said it's it's arcane in the sense that, you know, it was not an area that many people were looking at at the time. But it's not particularly abstruse or difficult in terms of its mathematical content. Um, you know, yes, it, it's something that, you know, would be difficult to understand without um, uh, a few undergraduate courses in, in physics. But, you you know, it's it's easy enough to understand even without finishing an undergraduate degree in physics. You know, you can work through the theorem with sophomore or junior college level of um, of mathematics and quantum physics. Um, it's just that understanding the concepts behind it are, is a little bit hard, and it's something that people didn't pay attention to for a very long time. Uh, but yeah, Bell's theorem, as you said, it. it basically says that that Einstein was right, but not in a way that Einstein anticipated. Um, uh, it says, you know, Einstein made a very powerful argument in the mid-1930s, the one that Schrodinger responded to with Schrodinger's cat. Einstein, along with his two colleagues, Podolsky and Rosen, made an argument that quantum physics, as usually understood with the Copenhagen interpretation, either had to be non-local, 
meaning that there was you know spooky action at a distance, instantaneous connections between far separated objects, or it was an incomplete description of nature. And this was, and and still is, a very good argument. You know, I, I, the, there doesn't really seem to be any real problem with it, despite the fact that many people have said over the years that they've identified the problem with it. And then there's not really a problem with it. It was not p- expressed particularly well in the first paper where the three of them laid this out. It's It's been called the EPR argument after the initials of the three physicists involved, Einstein, Podolsky, and Rosen. Um, the original EPR paper didn't lay out the argument in a particularly clear way, but later papers made it much more clear, and, and Einstein himself really made it crystal clear in his later writings that the problem was that quantum physics had to choose between locality and completeness, you know, being a complete description of what's going on in nature. And then Bell came along and said, actually, it's even worse than Einstein said. It's not a choice between quantum physics. It's not a choice between locality and quantum physics being complete. It's a choice between locality and quantum physics being correct. Uh, In other words, if the universe is local and there are no instantaneous long-distance connections between objects, then there are certain situations that you can set up in an experimental lab where the predictions of quantum physics will fail. Uh, So he, he took it from this philosophical point that Einstein had made to something that could actually be tested in a laboratory. And uh, and the tests were done, and quantum physics successfully predicted the outcomes of those tests, which meant that locality failed, uh, and that under certain conditions, there can, in fact, be instantaneous long-distance connections between objects. Probably. There are a couple of ways out of Bell's theorem, but they involve things that are even stranger, like the many-worlds interpretation. Um, but... Um, the this theorem was you know widely misunderstood from the start as ruling out any more complete description of what was going on in the way that einstein had talked about you know uh a lot of people took it as saying that bohr was right which is strange because it's not clear what bohr was saying um but a lot of people took Bell's theorem and the associated experimental tests as saying, oh, the Copenhagen interpretation is the only good way to think about quantum physics. Interesting. Uh, I didn't know that. But one question I had about Bell, just in terms of your theme on, on you know, he he was a realist. Yes. And how did that, like, kind of manifest in his ethos, his practice as a scientist? Like, is it like, it was necessary for him to have that attitude, that claim of realism that approach to to science as as a picture of reality he needed that in order to come up with his theorem to 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 think through these things in a, in a new way yes he did yeah uh he he was very unhappy with quantum physics when he first encountered it in school and then he was told of a proof that no the copenhagen interpretation is the only way to do things and this this proof was um from the great mathematician and physicist John von Neumann. And so Bell couldn't read this proof because at the time it was only in German, but he thought, okay, well, I guess that means that I'm wrong, but I'd like to take a closer look at this at some point. And then a couple years later, he actually saw a paper from David Bohm, which 
made it very clear, no, there is at least one other way to think about quantum physics. You can think about quantum physics in a way where objects have positions at all times, and there's always an answer to the question, has the radioactive uh, source decayed or not decayed in Schrodinger's cat, even if you don't know what the answer is. And there's certain conditions under which you can't know what the answer is, but there is, in principle, an answer. Uh, and, and basically just provides answers to all of these questions that the Copenhagen interpretation says are meaningless and you can't ask them, uh, or at least many of those questions. And so Bell immediately looked at that and said, okay, so my, my intuition was correct. People were being vague for no good reason. Uh, there was another way of doing things. And this proof by von Neumann must be wrong. Uh, but I don't know why. And that already set him apart because a lot of people looked at what Bohm did and said, oh, but this has to be wrong because of what von Neumann did. Von Neumann's proof was wrong, or at least didn't prove what von Neumann and other people thought it proved. It proved something else altogether, much weaker. And it was Bell's commitment to realism and also his sort of moral commitment to uh, uh, integrity uh, in, in the way that we do science that, you know, uh, moved him to to say, okay, I cannot abide this. There's a real problem here. The way that people are talking about Bohm's ideas and more generally the idea of realism in quantum physics clearly doesn't make any sense. It's not internally consistent. There's a real problem here. And so a few years later, uh, he sat down and looked at von Neumann's proof because at that point it had been translated into English and found the problem with it, wrote up a paper explaining what that problem was and said, you know, realism is still a viable option in quantum physics. And then said, okay, realism is still a viable option. What about locality? What about Einstein's other major concern? Because one of the unpleasant features of Bohm's version of quantum physics was that it was very non-local. Uh, Bell said that, you know, in in, um, in Bohm's quantum physics, the movement of a magnet here on Earth would affect the position of an electron anywhere in the universe, very, very slightly. But um, and, and that was unpalatable, or at least, you know, very um, strange looking. And so Bell wondered, okay, is this a necessary feature? Is this something that has to be true? in any version of quantum physics. And so he sat down and started playing around with the mathematics of quantum physics and found that, yes, if quantum physics is correct in all situations, then it has to be non-local. You know, and, what, what, yeah. what, are, what are the things I, I love about that is that, I, you know, I'm kind of reflecting again on the sort of, the way that, that, that physics works for people like me in terms of like why we keep reading it, even though I'm not a mathematician, I'm not a physicist, I'll never do, be able to really understand the intricacies of these things. Why do I keep doing it? And one of the reasons is to have my mind blown, to have like, wow, reality <laughs> is different than I thought it was, or it's, it's counterintuitive, or it's even more magnificently you know, complex. But what the irony of your story for me then, for, or my kind of reader, is that you know, in a way, like, oh, Bohr's the cool guy, because it's like, oh, we only know so much, and it's all this sort of complementarity, and you can see it from two directions at once, but only have to, you know, da-da-da. Whereas it's actually the realist, the one who's saying, no, 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 this We're talking about the universe here, guys. we got to be serious here. He's the one that delivers, you know, in a way, 
the weirdest thing of all. I mean, it, again, if, if it holds up, maybe there's some other thing that's actually going on. But if it holds up, non-locality, this kind of instantaneous communication or connection, you know, across the universes, that's a real that is, that's a real mind blower. And yeah. and so there's an irony in it there that it's actually kind of and Bohm is a similar character where it's the realist, not the person who's satisfied with a mind only perspective or like only you know, we have to just always think, be reflexive about consciousness or just turn it back to the observer, which in a way kind of goes along with certain sorts of, you know, spiritual or, you know, idealist ways of thinking about the world. It's actually the guys who are like pushing towards the real that come up with the more far out theory. Yeah, uh, no, I think that's right. I mean, Bell's theorem and some other theorems like it, um, basically make it very clear that if you want to come up with a picture of the world that is consistent with quantum physics, if you want to understand what the world looks like, sure, you have some options, but they're going to have to be strange. There's going to have to be something weird about that picture of the world. But as I said earlier, weirdness, strangeness, that's fine. You know, the world is a big place. It's a, a wild and woolly place, right? You know, there can plenty of room for weirdness and strangeness. Uh, the, the problem is you you don't want to have an internally contradictory or nonsensical description of the world, right? And this is this is what many versions of the Copenhagen interpretation suffer from. Uh, is you know they're not. It's not that they're weird. It's that they're gibberish. Uh, <laughs> and and we we want a description of the world that isn't gibberish. It can be weird. It would it would almost be strange if it wasn't weird because the world is a weird place. Uh, but but it can't be gibberish. Yeah. Well, um, you know, Adam, yeah. I'm, I'm afraid we've reached that point, but that's a good place to end. Uh, Adam Becker, author of What is Real, it was great talking to you. Thanks so much for coming on uh, Expanding Mind. Absolutely. Yeah, it was my pleasure to be here. I did want to say one last thing. It's a technical point, but I got to say it. Sure. Um, can't use quantum non-locality for communication. You can prove that. It's a very subtle kind of long-distance connection. Absolutely, yeah. That's a yeah. Fa that fascinating story is told in uh, David Kaiser's great book. Uh, uh, you know, how the hippies uh, save physics. How the hippies save physics. So yeah, uh, that's a fun book. Yeah. yeah. All right. Until next week, folks. Keep your minds open. <laughs> <laughs>